0: It. I do want to welcome everybody. It's good to see so many uh, visitors here as well. Um, I do want to highlight that I missed last time to welcome someone very special, someone that has been prayed for quite a bit. Um, Kiran, I don't know. If we, I know that we're having a, a little party celebration a bit, but some of our church members may not be able to be there. So could you please stand with your beautiful bride this morning and give a big welcome? We have been praying for you. We want to extend ourselves as a, your church family here, your brothers and sisters in Christ, to support and pray for you, you both. And uh, we look forward to celebrating again what took place some time ago. God bless you guys. Thank you so much for being here. And there's another group of people that I want to um, welcome, which is my parents and um, my brother and my sister-in-law and my nieces and nephews who are uh, sitting in that corner of our church and you probably get to see them uh, my brother looks like me but he has hair and uh, <laughs> a little taller than I am <laughs> and my, bro- my dad is a little shorter than I am and he also has hair so I have to talk to the Lord about that I don't know how that happened but I'm so happy my family has been with us this past week uh, making some awesome memories um, I also want to take a little bit of time to thank um, Janalyn For helping the pastor stomach feel better after El Salvador, something happened, and there was a danger that this morning's sermon would have been a short one. But thanks to you, this morning's sermon will be a long one. We can all thank you afterwards. (laughs) So let's have a word of prayer before we begin. Father, thank you. Thank you for family. Thank you for marriages. Thank you for ministries that are eager to explore new horizons. Thank you for music. Father, above all, thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, through whom we can come to know who you are. And through understanding your awesome love, we can learn how to love other humans. And in this case, Lord, our spouses. And Father, I pray for your spirit to move upon us. Not so that we can just understand, but Father, to be transformed. In Jesus' name, amen. Marriage, uh, I think, is a very practical way to bring a tension, a, an area of tension that we have within Christianity. Uh, in a few weeks, uh, Elder Trombley will be engaging some of these tensions. And one of the big ones is how does grace and law relate? It is unfortunate that many Christians don't have a clear understanding, um, a biblical understanding of grace and law. As a means of synopsis, someone is going to give you the wrong way. Many Christians believe that in the Old Testament, God loved you and showed his love to you by giving you the law. But in the New Testament, God shows his love to you by giving you his grace. And by separating law and grace for centuries, Christians have done themselves a great injury because it confuses the gospel, it confuses the Bible. And this morning, we're going to be addressing, we need to set that foundation because this morning's sermon is entitled The Law of Marriage, and I'm going to tell you right now that All we're going to do is see that there's a direct correlation between the Ten Commandments that God gave humanity, that these Ten Commandments that provide the context of a wonderful, loving relationship between a human and God, our Creator, are the same laws that enable a human being to show love and sustain a lifelong relationship with another human being. There's no other way. And so, but I don't want this sermon to come across as legalistic. And so, I want us to um, think about a bit, you know, when, when pastors, friends of mine have said those things, you know, we are not under the law, we are now under grace, I, I would love for them to consider some, some situations, some marriage scenarios. Mar- marriage scenarios such as a wife one day coming home and being the first one to get the mail, because the husband has been, always gotten the mail, their whole married life, and this wife for the first time gets the mail and sees an envelope of a bank bank she's never heard of before, and her husband's name is there and it's an account statement. And as she opens it, she discovers that there's thousands of dollars in this bank account that she has no idea, and she thinks, surely this is a scam. And when the husband gets home, the husband grows pale, begins to stutter and sweat as she's holding what she thinks is a false statement. But as she sees her husband's reaction, she realizes, oh, no, no, this is real. I've just discovered that my husband, for years, has had a secret bank account in which he was funneling not just his salary, but my money as well. But we're under grace, not under law. What does that mean in that scenario? Or a husband that decides to take an early lunch to surprise his wife and gets flowers, and as he bursts through the doors in his house to surprise his wife, the one surprises himself as he finds her embracing another man. But we're under grace, not under law. How do we apply that? What does that mean? What we don't want it to mean in the marriage, we shouldn't want it to mean with God. And so we want to understand and be consistent in how we apply grace and law. And my contention, my my presentation, the biblical presentation of it, is that grace and law are one and the same. They're not in opposition. The grace of God and the law of God are beautifully intertwined and inseparable. The grace of God would definitely be available for these two individuals in these two circumstances. And they're not hypothetical. Well, how does the grace of God approach and relate to these individuals? Well, the grace of God approaches these individuals with this You're wrong. Church, is it, is it right for a husband to have a secret bank account from his wife that he does not, she does not know anything about? Is that right or wrong? Is it right or wrong for a man to find his wife embracing another man? You don't sound very convinced but you know it's wrong. The grace of God is a standard of ethics and morality. And the reason you need forgiveness is because you have done something wrong. And grace will never evade the fact that we've done something wrong, but there's a remedy for it. The grace of God comes in a complete package. Um, We're going to look at some verses real quick. Romans 3.31 says, Do we then make void the law through faith? Certainly not. On the contrary, what do we do with the law? We establish it. Faith and grace do not throw away God's law out the window. They establish it, but in a very special place. Um, Romans 6.15 says, What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law but under grace? Certainly what? Not. These are not ambiguous statements that Paul is stating here. He's very much um, in, in tune with no antagonism between grace and law. And there's one verse that I neglected to put on the slide, which is Romans 8.4. And it says this, That the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. That the righteous requirement, what the law desires, what the law commands... That the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk after the spirit, not after the flesh. There's great debate even within Adventist circles, as to whether, whether we, we can keep the law. God's answer is, "No, you can't. But what is impossible with men becomes possible with God. And God has devised a way in which you are not asked to keep the law. You are asked to allow God to do something in your heart, which is the work of grace. This is grace summarized in the book of Hebrews, chapter 10, verses 15 through 16. But the Holy Spirit also witnesses to us, for after he, the Holy Spirit, has said, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord, I will put my what? My laws into where? Their heart, And in their minds, what will He do? Write them. This is grace. Church, listen carefully. This is grace. The work of God's grace is that through the power of the Holy Spirit, God writes His law in your heart and in your mind, in your thoughts and in your feelings. And that is the greatest gift God can ever give you. So, what we are going to be exploring right now is not what you and I ought to be doing, but what we ought to let God work within us to empower us to live out. And it is a journey. It is a journey of growth. So I think we're all familiar with the Ten Commandments. We're not going to spend time reading through them. They're found in Exodus chapter 20 verses 3 uh, through 17. We're going to just look at the summary and how they apply to our marriage context. Just like God says you shall have no other gods before me, it implies an exclusive commitment. And this sentence after God, no person is should be more important than who? After God, no other human being ought to be more important than who? My spouse. But pastor, in my culture, it doesn't work that way. You know, that statement did not work in the culture of Israel either. When God says, you shall have no other gods before me, how many gods did the Philistine have? How many gods did the Assyrians have? How many gods did the Babylonians have? Multiplicity of gods. And all the gods were okay with these people having other gods. But God says, I am not okay with that. I want exclusive rights to your heart. Therefore, if you want to have a relationship with me, you will have no other gods before me. And in marriage context, this statement is a lot easier to type, a lot easier to read, and a lot easier to say, Yep, that's a good statement right there. No other person besides God ought to be more important than me. And then comes the in laws. Who is more important, your mom and dad or your wife? And a single person answers. Who is more important, your parents or your wife? Who is more important, your parents or your husband? Once you get married, the Bible says you've got to leave your parents. And a man shall leave his mother and father and cling to his wife, and the two shall become one. There is no room for more than just the two of them. And us that are parents, I mean, I'll be hearing this sermon someday when my daughter decides to get, Jesus will come by then, so what am I talking about? (laughs) Praise the Lord. (laughs) But I'll be hearing this part of this sermon should my daughters ever get married, and I need to be able to respect that boundary. So I'm appealing to you, father-in-laws and mother-in-laws, keep your ladle out of their pot. Do you know what I'm talking about? Keep your ladle out of their pot, even if you think the food is burning. Amen? Amen? Amen. Because you're, you're damaging that marriage if you do. I'm not talking about if, if, if your son or your daughter is suffering physical maltreatment or starvation. Those are extreme situations. But listen, every marriage goes through challenges and every marriage goes through ups and downs and you need to let people, individuals, work them out. And we're not alone. As a parent, if you're seeing your your kids go through difficult times, rather than sticking your ladle in it, pray for them. Pray for your kids. Fast for them. Entreat the Lord for them, but stay out of it. This commandment uh, is connected to the next one, which is no other gods before me, no, no images. This image part is related to the first commandment. And uh, we're going to spend switching gears a bit, um, how, what we bring from our homes into our marriage. We want our husbands to be made into our image of the kind of husband I want him to be versus trusting God to transform my husband into the man I need him to be. Do you see the difference there, church? And it goes both ways, by the way. Men tend to complain that one of the reasons they don't want to get married is because women always want to change men. You know, I remember as a bachelor listening to a lot of comedians saying that's why they're single. And they don't understand women. You know, women are like, They they buy a blue car, and then they want to paint it red. Why don't you just buy a red car in the first place, right? You marry a man that does this, and you want to change him into a man that does that. Just leave me alone. That's the statement. That's the mantra. Well, they want you to change the other person into what you think they ought to be is something that both men and women do. Men also put pressure and expectations on what they think their wife ought to be or the wife ought to do. I know that for a fact from the culture that I come from in Argentina. In Argentina, some of the images that are presented to young people as to what they should replicate when they get married is the image of the husband sits at home in front of the television while the wife serves him food. Thank you for not saying amen. Amen. That's the image. The woman's place is in the kitchen. And I I thought about that in preparing the sermon as I was making brownies for my daughters. I began to think what would my uncles in Argentina think of me with my apron here mixing and looking at recipes and so hot out here? I'm not I wasn't barefoot and I wasn't pregnant, but you know I was a Latino man baking in the kitchen and then doing dishes and helping fold the laundry. And that's willingly but that's not the image that I grew up with and so the Word of God the Ten Commandments in the same way that the transgression of this law is sin and the wages of sin is what the wages of sin is death to break the law in the commandments of marriage is to cause this marriage to begin to die and me trying to force my spouse to become something that they don't want to be or shouldn't be, I'm trying to impose on them what I think a wife needs to be. I'm trying to impose on him what a husband, what I think a husband needs to be. When I really don't have a good model to begin with. Who, is, who invented marriage? Who is the only one that knows what a husband ought to be? Who's the only one that knows what a wife ought to be? So let God work on your husband. Let God work on your wife. Don't try to change because really changing someone into your own image is idolatry and it's self defeating and it's self frustrating. Because should you, hypothetically speaking, should you accomplish your goal of fashioning your husband or fashioning your wife just the way you would want them to be, you will be disappointed with the end result. You will be disappointed with the end result. We don't know what we need. And what we want is transient. It changes with time. I want to speak... um, There's two books, by the way, this whole concept of the Ten Commandments... Come from a book called Marriage Covenant by Samuel Baikyoki. I highly recommend that you will only be able to find it used. That's how I found it. But there's another one um, called The Meaning of Marriage by Timothy Keller. Um, I would highly encourage you, whether you're in a Christian marriage or not Christian marriage, both books will help you tremendously. In the book uh, The Meaning of Marriage, uh, Timothy Keller quotes John Tierney, who is a uh, secular columnist for the New York Times. This article came out in um, February 12th, right before Valentine's in 1995. And here, Mr. Tini, um he recounts he he moved around very professional individuals in the Manhattan area of New York, and he wrote down in a humorous article the reasons why his colleagues and friends ended relationships, why they terminated the relationships. And so the first one he quotes is, she, mispron- she mispronounced Gerda. That's how you say that, Gerda. If you said ghost, these individuals would have said, sorry, um, please delete my phone number from your cell phone, please. I'm not calling you again. We're done. Gerda. I didn't know who that was and I didn't know how to pronounce it. The only reason I can do it correctly is because I Googled it. Which means that any of us that would have said "ghost," that individual would have said, "You are not worthy of me." Shh, shh you're out. Here are some other reasons. She, uh, how could I take him seriously after seeing the road less traveled on his bookshelf? A book on a bookshelf, you're out. If she would just lose seven pounds. Sure, he's a partner. This is someone speaking about a, a law firm, lawyer. Sure, he's a partner, but it's not a big firm, and he wears those short black socks. And so she ended that relationship with him because of short black socks. Well, it all started out great, beautiful face, great body, nice smile, everything was going fine until she turned around. He paused, he paused ominously and shook his head. She had dirty elbows. These are the reasons, the legitimate reasons, why these highly educated, highly sophisticated people living in New York City, the Mecca of the world, are ending relationships. Books on a shelf, seven pounds, Gerda, and dirty elbows. None of us would have qualified. Well, I don't know about your elbows. Maybe some of us would have qualified. But the point of... Uh, this article is to list that this image-making process is not new in marriage. And more than ever before, there's this, this resistance of young people, both males and females, to get married. And it's not, you know, I haven't done, finished my career. These are individuals that their career is done a long time ago. They're successful. They have money. They keep dating. They keep dating. They keep meeting people. They keep going to places. But they never land the plane because they have become idolatrous. Many of these young individuals, many of these 30s, 40s, and 50-year-olds that are bachelors, not all of them, but many of them, when they are given the reason as to why they haven't married yet, is because they haven't found the perfect one. But their perfect one does not exist. That perfect individual they're searching for is an image they have created in their mind that no human being could ever fulfill. To conduct a me-marriage requires two completely well-adjusted, happy individuals with very little in the way of emotional neediness of their, own or of their own or character flaws that need a lot of work. The problem is, there's almost no one like that out there to marry This will indeed require a woman who is a novelist slash astronaut with a background in fashion modeling. That's the standard. Anyone here qualify? These dirty elbows, Gerda, seven pounds. That's just the tip of the iceberg of a society in which through secularity is placing such a high standard of expectation as to what my partner ought to be that no human being will ever, could ever achieve it. All the while, as they are looking for this perfect individual with this such high standard, at the same time, one of the attributes they want this human to have is that they will accept them with all their imperfections and they will not try to impose on me any changes that I need to make. I want you to be perfect, but don't expect me to be perfect. You know what that is called? Hypocrisy. And there's nothing that makes us more hypocritical than idolatry. And this is speaking about single individuals and they're um, resistant to entering into a marriage covenant. But those of us that are into a marriage covenant need to guard ourselves from idolatry. Because one of the things about idolatry is that you never will end up with just one idol. Once you have one idol, you'll begin with two, three, four, and all of these commandments are connected. Paul connects idolatry with the the commandment of covetousness. And if you're starting to think that you've married someone that does not fit your image, I thought my husband was going to be like this. I thought my wife was going to be like this always. You know, a wrinkle-free wife. I thought that's going to be my wife your expectations of your wife, your expectations of your husband, you need to guard yourself that they're not idolatrous because through that idolatry, you will begin to covet other people's husbands. You will begin to covet other people's wives. Maybe not necessarily to start a relationship with them, but certainly to give you enough reasons to be discontent with the one you have. If you break the commandments, the breaking of the law, which is sin, brings death. Not taking the name in vain, this is a commandment that is pretty self-explanatory. Um, we are commanded, commanded to not be all spouses, whether in public or in private, and this belittling also applies to what sometimes I've seen um, in Hispanic culture, African-American culture, Korean culture, New Zealand culture, Uh, what I'm trying to say is that all of us do this. All of us will say something about our spouses and then say, what is it joking? What are you so mad about? It was just a joke. My wife and I were starting to date and my wife said something and I told my wife, she said a joke to me. I can't remember if it was about me or what, but I told my wife, there's always truth in every joke. There's always truth in every joke. And by you saying, I'm just joking, I'm just joking, you're just realizing, oh, I, I crossed the boundary, I'm, I'm going to back up. But what you said, you meant it. What you said, you meant it. And your joke that you thought was funny actually hurt your spouse. So humor that is at done, done at the expense of your spouse, whether private or public, don't do it. But my culture, take your culture, put it in the toilet and flush it. Amen? Get rid of those excuses. Get rid of this. It's my American culture. It's my Hispanic culture. You are a Christian. Your culture is in heaven. Start detaching from the ones down here. Amen? Especially for the sake of your marriage. Especially for the sake of your spouse. Remember the Sabbath day? This one, my wife, the Lord used in tremendous ways to help me. I thought we live together, we're going to see each other eventually. And that, that counts. My wife was like, no, honey, we need to actually make time for each other. But you're sleeping next to me for like 10 hours, 8 hours. It, doesn't that count? <laughs> no. That doesn't count as time together. God has placed a special regular time to meet with us in his tablets of stone. How many specific regular times do I have marked in my calendar with my spouse's name on it? It won't just happen. And if you have not realized how fast-paced of our society has become, if you don't carve out time for your spouse, you won't have time with your spouse. And if you don't have time with your spouse, you're spending time with idols. That's the the consistent uh, paradigm from the Bible with regards to Sabbath-keeping in Israel. Whenever Israel became idolatrous, the first thing that suffered was their Sabbath keeping, their time with God. Why were they not keeping their time with God? I'm reading through the book of Nehemiah. I've been sending these messages. I don't know if you guys have been receiving them through WhatsApp. And I've been inviting you to join through the Bible reading throughout the year. I just finished Ezra and Nehemiah this past week. And in the midst of this reform of trying to rebuild the temple... These leaders were, were amazed at how quickly people were having disregard of the Sabbath business. Money, money, i got to make money, I can't lose my job, i got to make money. And so Sabbath, there are other gods when Sabbath is not at the center. And if time with my spouse is not a priority enough to put and say, no, this is the time that my spouse and I, even if it's pillow talk, even if it's pillow talk, it's because I'm spending time with television, entertainment, job, career, something else. Something else is taking the time that you ought to be investing with your spouse. There's nothing more costly, listen carefully, church. There's nothing more costly, more valuable, or of more personal worth that you can give your spouse than what? Your time. Your time. It's the highest demonstration of love. Commandment number five says honor your mother and your father. We've already talked about this. As a married person, we assume responsibility for our parents, but no longer to our parents. We may ask our parents for counsel. We may ask for advice. Um, we ask for their prayers. But ultimately, married couples need to make decisions themselves. We must establish consistent and clear boundaries. The commandment to not murder, it's, you know, not as clear. Uh, Of course you shouldn't murder your spouse. It's not that that part's not clear. But how do we get there? Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says, "It has been told told to you of old that you shouldn't commit murder. But I tell you, if any of you is angry. If any of you is angry with your brother. In Genesis chapter 4, when God approaches Cain, and ask him, why is your face downcast and why are you angry? The first murder was committed because anger was not dealt with. And Jesus says, forget about trying to not murder someone. That's too late. If you're going to put the, try to put the brakes so that you don't pull the trigger on someone, you're going to pull the trigger. And we're seeing that in our society, aren't we not? person getting pulled over by a police officer and just goes off into a rampage of pulling trigger. That's rage inside that person. There's anger inside that person. And it's been there for years. The book of James says that anger is like a raging fire. A fire that starts small, but someone has allowed it to go out of control. And you can be bringing that anger from your own home. From your childhood. You could be bringing your anger from outside of the home from frustrations in your profession, from financial pressures, etc. The Bible does not forbid us to be angry, but the Bible says, be angry but do not sin. You need to take your fires of angers to the Lord because the water of the Holy Spirit can quench that unholy thing growing inside of you. But if you leave it unchecked, If you do not brain in and tell the Lord, Lord, I'm angry, I'm not even sure why I'm angry, but certainly I'm angry, I am short-tempered, I am quipping, I'm biting, I'm poking, I have the symptoms. In Spanish, we say a saying, where there's smoke, there's fire. And if there's smoke coming out of your ears, there's a fire in your heart. If there's smoke coming out of your mouth, there's a fire in your heart. Don't deceive yourself. I just read this past week a statement by a friend uh, named Sarah McDougall. It says, If the words and the actions don't match up, believe the actions. If the words and the actions don't match up, believe the actions. I'm I'm not angry. I'm not angry. Bam! Boom! Bam! I'm not angry. If the actions and the words don't match up, what are you to believe? And this is for me. I may be trying to convince other people of something that I can even convince myself. And anger is the first emotion that is listed in the scriptures that ended up with murder. And I may not, may not ever pull a trigger with my hand, but I can certainly pull my trigger with my tongue. And Satan can make your mouth into a machine gun, into a destructive weapon of mass destruction. Jesus says, by your words you will be justified, but take note that by your words you also will be condemned. The commandments are there because they're real. And when we break these commandments, we suffer the consequences. So the idea, like I said at the beginning of the sermon, the reason we took that little preamble is not for you to go home and now say, I gotta guard my mouth. I gotta gu-. No, no, no. You need to let the Lord write His law in your heart. What we are reading right now, it is utterly impossible for you to even come close to ever keeping anything of what we we're talking about, myself included. This is the miracle of the grace of God in your life. This is the only way this is going to happen. God can quench and heal whatever is producing the anger in our lives. And forgiveness is a core component of it. Forgiveness has to be part of marriage. Forgiveness is a must. Uh, Ephesians 4.32 says, And be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. Colossians 3.13 says, Bearing with one another and forgiving one another if anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. And I paused here at the Monroe Church earlier this morning, and I'm going to pause right here to say this. Yes, you must forgive. But listen carefully, church. If you find yourself in a physically, verbally abusive relationship, you need to get out of that relationship. If you're married to someone that is continually belittling you, cutting you down, and insulting you, and degrading you, and destroying your self-esteem, you need to get out of that relationship. doesn't necessarily mean you have to divorce that person, but you need to remove yourself, physically remove yourself from that place, dear sister, dear brother. But mainly, unfortunately, the trend in this has been men being the perpetrators and women being the victims. And dear sister, possibly dear brother, if you're in a home where your spouse has crossed that boundary of physical abuse, you definitely need to leave. And don't be afraid to call 911. Amen. Paul says that if there's humans that do not fear God, maybe they will fear the sword of Rome. And there may be individuals that will not fear the judgment of God because that's still in the future, and for them, who cares? But they may fear the, the police officer who's going to handcuff them and throw them in jail for a couple of years. Maybe that will sober them up. We are Christians. But even as Christians, love has boundaries. And if you find yourself in these situations, talk to me, talk to the pastor, we have Uh, male elders, praise the Lord for our female elders that we have in our church as well. We have deacons and deaconesses. Do not stay in such a relationship. God is not expecting you to. This summons us to be faithful in our marriage covenant by refraining from illicit sexual acts or thoughts, of course speaking about no adultery. There are components to this. This involves not seeking sexual experiences outside of marriage, and that word, seeking, synonymous with this friends both you that are bachelors should be listening or bachelorettes because this is a habit that people pick up when they're bachelors and it carries over to when they're married and it is the habit of being flirtatious being flirtatious flirtatious is idolatry flirtatious is uh, emotional add you need to constantly have men tell you how pretty you look how wonderful your hair is how wonderful that new dress looks on you. This is, and it enslaves you. And it goes both ways. Men also crave that. And when you're single, you may be able to drop a line here. You may be a smooth operator with the ladies. But that doesn't stop when you get married. And that habit will carry over. And if at work, you are careless with your glances. If at work you are careless with your humor and your smiles and your friendliness, I'm just, I'm just a friendly person. No, you're not. You're flirtatious and the Holy Spirit is convicting you that you're crossing boundaries that as far as heaven is concerned, you're crossing the boundary of adultery. And of course, that never happens in church. There's a song by Steve Green that I heard when I was a bachelor for the first time in California while I was taking massage classes, and it made me cry. I wish someone had introduced me to this song when I was 12, 13, 14, around that time, 15. The song's entitled, Guard Your Heart. Never heard it before, I want to encourage you, write it down, Steve Green, um, Guard Your Heart, YouTube it, listen to it. Strong appeal to both single and married, can't allow the enemy. The Bible says, do not give the enemy a foothold. Do not give him an opportunity. He wants to destroy. Not along the attractiveness of members of the opposite sex to become deliberate fantasies of intimacy in our minds. This is where the battle is. Repulsing thoughts of sexual lust or perversion and refusing to, refusing to be sexually stimulated by writing books, films, or any other media. This is straight out of the, Dr. Bakioki's book. This is advice that is given in the negative, in the no. And you know, gentlemen gave the children a story of, a children's story in that sometimes there are things that you ought to be afraid of, and it's not a bad thing. And sin is something that we ought to fear. The the crossing of these boundaries are things that we ought to fear um, because they will not bring blessings. They will bring plenty of heartache. But let's spend time looking at sex in the positive. Um, this is something that you can actually use to exp- for yourself, of course, but to explain to friends, colleagues, children, grandkids that are of age. In regards to helping children, teens, young adults, visualize sex, conceptualize it in a biblical way. And you need to let them know, first of all, that God created it. And God did not make it into a dirty thing. It's a beautiful gift. Sex is a beautiful gift that God has given us. But sex, listen careful, church. This is important. Sex is the medium in which to express self-giving love to your spouse. That may sound like a simple illustri- uh, sentence. When I read it in Dr. Bakyoki's book, I read it, and I didn't even bother underlining it until I read it for the third time, and then I got it. And it's all highlighted now. In the world, in the movies, in the culture, in the music, the, man, the reason a man approaches a young lady and says, wow, I've never seen you here before. What is your name? Can I get your number? You must get asked this all the time. Are you a model? All those nauseous, nauseating things that men would say. I'm going to teach my daughter all those lines. <laughs> She's a smell that smelled my way. I link has all of this too. The former nurse, social work, holy spirit, prison Lord. But I'm going to tell my daughters, honey, there's only one goal this individual has with you. It's your body. That's it. That's it. Sex for them is the end. Sex is the goal. And it's because this is the society with singers like Ariana Grande and Eminem and all the know who's in style anymore, but Chubby Checkers, whoever, whoever, right, it's always been like this. It's always been like this. I was listening to a song in the pizzeria about the boardwalk, under the boardwalk. What? Under the boardwalk? What's happening under the boardwalk? What are you doing down there that you can't do up here? It's always been like that. There's always been that, that desire, that, that that lie. That the highest goal you can achieve with another human being is to take their sexuality, to use their sexuality. And it's there. Sex is not like that. And I hope this illustration helps you. This is sex. I don't know what it's that. So I'm not going to read it because I'm like. Sex is a piece of paper. Now let's pretend that I take this piece of paper and I fold it and I put it inside an envelope. I put an address and a stamp and I mail it blank to someone else. What have I done? What have I communicated? What have I communicated in a wordless piece of paper? You tell me, what have I communicated? Nothing. I have done nothing. That sex without commitment. That sex without God-derived love. You know, if I'm gonna do this, if if I'm gonna express something, I'm gonna take a piece of paper and I'm gonna put a name to begin with. A name. Just one. And then I'm gonna to begin to express my thoughts, my desires, starting to reveal, this is who is writing to you. I am like this, and I am like that. And there's going to be many more letters like this coming your way. I would love to know this about you, and I've noticed that about you, and these are the things and the thoughts that I have, and I haven't been able to stop, and I really want to, and yada, 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 and what do I put at the end? My name. I know we have done text, we maybe have forgotten how to do letters, right? Now I put it in an envelope. Now I put it on a stamp and I mail it. What have I expressed? What have I communicated? That's sex. Sex is just a piece of paper, it's the medium through which I express. But if I'm going to express something, there needs to be something there before. If I only engage in sex, I'm saying nothing. I'm expressing nothing. And I'm receiving nothing. Just wasting paper. Sex is how you tell your spouse, I'm committed to you alone. You are the only one. I have no other gods before you. I have nothing between, only God, but after God is only you. That's sex, and the world has no clue, no clue how to use this gift. This is what I want you to carry in your mind. Without sex, you will live, but without love and God, we die. You don't need sex to live. You will only need sex if you get married because only in marriage will we have someone to say, I'm fully committed to you for the rest of my life. That's it. It's the only relationship that you can express that. And that's what God designed sex to be. No stealing. We must not deprive our spouse of their right to make decisions um, by taking control of their finances. We must not use our financial limitations, must, must not use financial limitations per se, with a stay-at-home mom, as vulnerabilities to be exploited or used as bargaining chips. That doesn't just apply to stay-at-home moms. It applies to husbands and wives that begin to realize, hey, I make more money. I bring more money to the house than you do. Because my salary is bigger than yours, I make the final final calls in this house. Got a problem with that? Because your salary does not compare to my salary. You know what you've just done to your spouse when you said that? You are less valuable than me. You. You're not as worth as much as me. When you do that, that's commandment number two. You've just made a new image. And the image of your spouse is of less value than yourself. And that happens in professional circles. That happens in marriage, period. We think that the law of the land is the law of God. The golden rule of heaven is not the same golden rule of earth. The golden rule of earth, you know what it is? And we see it in the news all the time. He who has the gold makes the rules. But not in your own. If you make more money and she makes less money, or she makes more money and you make less money, the two shall become one. The two shall become one. It's our money. And I'm not going to use that as leverage when we're going to make a decision as to where we're going to vacation, what we're going to buy, what kind of car, all those things. Those decisions are not made based on income. They're They're made based on grace, prayer, and the wisdom of God. None of those other methods work. We must not steal our spouse's dignity by stealing their individuality and freedom, which we do. You destroy the person's dignity when you point out that they make less money than you. You just made them less valuable. And that is a lie. In fact, individuals that think that way have lost sight of the cross. Because as you look at your spouse as a Christian, you need to always keep the cross before you. Because that's their price tag. Want to know how much your wife is worth, Jelani? Ask Jesus, how much did you pray for, pay for Kisa? He said, you want to know how much Jelani is worth? Ask God the Father how much he was willing to give to save Jelani. That's the price of Jelani. The price of the blood of Jesus. So when you start having that sense of value, that economy as to how decisions are made in your home, it brings healing, it brings equality, it brings love, it brings respect. It restores dignity. Everything the opposite that the world wants to take away. therefore are false witness. uh, We break this commandment when we speak evil of each other, misrepresent our motives, misquote our words out of context, judge our motives, or criticize efforts to improve. Again, this is straight out of uh, Dr. Bakioki's book, which it's not that much that we need to say about this. How I talk to my spouse. It's a lot about how I keep this law, what is written in my heart. We must learn to listen and make sure you're not focused on what's being said and not what you think the other person is going to say, nor on what you're going to respond. We must learn to ask questions. We must learn to listen. That's what James says. Quick to listen, slow to speak. We may be able, we may have, <laughs> we may be able to temporarily modify behaviors, but only God can transform our hearts. So this idea of coveting embodies everything else. This idea of coveting is the fruit of idolatry. You had an image of your wife? How disappointing. You've heard me tell you this illustration many times, but it bears repeating. I asked bachelors, single friends of mine that are considering marrying their significant other, and I asked them, do you really want to know if God wants you to marry this person? Of course I do. That would give me so much peace of mind to know that 100% 100% God has confirmed that she's the one. He is the one. If I could have that certainty, Pastor, I could face anything. Well, I can only think of one instance in the Bible. There may be more, and you can share those with me, but I can only think of one instance in the Bible in which a married couple knew 100% that God wanted them married. When to give you hints, there were cameras involved in the process. 10 of them. And there was a well with water. Anyone want to take a guess what story I'm thinking of? Isaac and Rebecca. Eliezer prayed, Lord, here's a sign. She's going to have to water all my camels, right? Priscilla, that would be a hard prayer to fulfill, right? Man, that's like 500 gallons. Who knows? A lot. But Eliezer says, I thank you, God, of my master Abraham. You've answered this is beyond any question or any doubt. This marriage verified and certified from heaven. And if you fast forward, when Isaac is an old man, he's become a stubborn knucklehead. of Of course, he's the exception. Most men are not like that. So we woke up. <laughs> Isaac became a stubborn, proud man because he knew his children had received prophetic instruction that the older would serve the younger. Which means that the inheritance needed to go to the younger one. He knew that. But he loved Esau. He made up his mind. My wife is not going to tell me what to do. I'm, I'm a man. I wear the apron in this house. Um, I'm going to do what I want. And I'm going to bless Esau. And that was a marriage ordained in heaven. Rebecca, simultaneously, is teaching Jacob how they're going go to go the roots and see Isaac. How she's teaching her son how they're going to lie to dad. And this is the best God. God is so real. Society creates these highfalutin, fictitious characters that no human being ever attain. But God says, you want someone good? I'll get you one that is not as broken. But you know what? Every human being is broken. And so don't ask me for a new model. There aren't any. You're just going to have to trust that when I bring you together, I'm going to provide so much grace. I'm going to pour my Holy Spirit on that knucklehead husband of yours. Amen. <laughs> Pray for us. I'm going to give you continual assurances. I am on your side, and I want your marriage to succeed. Don't give up. You have me. When you are weak, lean on my strength. Because you will not get so perfect. And marriage will be the centerpiece of your greatest witnesses of the grace of God in your life. And you have a part to play in it. Your part to play in it is to open your heart today and say, Lord, anoint me with your Holy Spirit. Because you tell me in your word that it is through the power of the Holy Spirit that you will write your own laws in my heart and engrave them in my mind. And I want your law, Lord. I want to only have eyes for my husband. I want to only have eyes for my wife. I want to be able to have boundaries between my family and my marriage. I want to have no hidden finances from my spouse. I want to have transparency when it comes to financial decisions. I want grace. I want grace. This last little slide, and we pray. If the grass seems greener on the other side, turn your sprinklers on. Stop being so cheap. Don't worry about the water bill. Maybe your grass is not as green, because you've been it. And if your God were to give you green grass, you would neglect that too. The problem is not the grass, it's you. You don't need new grass, you need a new heart. You need a heart in which God has written His law. You need a heart in which His grace is working. Patient with your husband. God is working in his heart. Be patient with your wife. God is working in your heart. Cling to Jesus. Stop looking at someone else's yard. Water your own. Father in heaven, you are so good. Yes. Yes. You are so real. We are so faithful. We are so shallow, we are such hypocrites. We demand so much and give so little. That's the best we can do. Father, forgive us for not telling you thank you for the spouse you've given us. Forgive us that in our prayers we complain more than pray. Intercede, claim promises, and believe. Lord, look at the parched grounds represented by our families. The careless words spoken years ago that are still bleeding today. The wounds that decisions, careless decisions, have had such vast destructive effects. Father, there's a promise in the Word of God, in your Word, that I want to claim on behalf of all of us, Lord. Found in the book of Job that says that you would restore the years that the locusts have eaten the years of our foolishness the years of our pride the years of our sin the years of our rebellion O father in heaven forgive and father by your grace give us a second chance in our marriages give us a second chance in our homes give us a second chance at life Allow us, Father, to experience your grace. Father, we don't want this, I don't want this to be a good sermon preached, a good sermon heard. Father, we want this to be a sermon that we live, that we live because your Spirit lives in us. And moment by moment, day by day, we submit and surrender as you seek, seek to fulfill your promise to write your law in our hearts, write Your law in my heart, Father. Write Your law in the heart of my wife. Write Your law in the heart of my brothers and my sisters. You promise us, claim it, not because we deserve, but because we desperately in Jesus.